how it lights my path, how it guides my way. So um, this is Luke chapter 4, and it's verse 1 to 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will, be all, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you worship. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So I'm just going to pray for Steve. Thank you, Father, that your word is life. And your word is life because it is Jesus. So, Father, we just lift Steve to you now. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be empowering um, the things that you've given him to say, that you would empower your word, that it would be life to the people here. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to take everybody back into the dim and distant past. Actually, that's a bit insulting. But I want to take people back to when we were children. Can you remember what you wanted to do when you grew up? Because people were always asking you, what are you going to do when you grow up? What did you say? What did you say that you wanted to do when you grew up? Anybody here realize their dream? Anybody here do the thing that they really wanted to do? Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant, there are some people here. In my school... All the boys wanted to be professional footballers. <laughs> really, I don't think anybody ever made it. A couple of years back, there was a survey done in the United States amongst people. 60% of people were not doing what they wanted to do. 58% of people said if they still had the chance to do what they wanted to do as a kid, they'd grab it with both hands. And what sort of jobs do people want to do? Artists and police people, 
healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, professional athletes and dancers, writers, movie stars, vets, all sorts of things. They were up the top of the list. They're the things that people here wanted to do. All sorts of other things that we want to do. A more difficult question, perhaps. A difficult question to, to ask, and maybe a question that we can ask of where we are, is what kind of one of those would we be? What kind of movie star would we be? What kind of writer would we be? What kind of nurse would we be? What kind of teacher would we be? What kind of professional footballer would we be? What would characterise us? What way would we act and behave? What would our priorities be? What are our priorities, where we are, where we're doing, in the place that God has called us to be? Because that's what this passage this morning is really about. It's not so much about Jesus' victory over temptation, although it is about Jesus' victory over temptation. But that's not the main thrust of the way that the story is told here. It's not just to tell us how Jesus overcame temptation. It illustrates three occasions where Jesus was tempted, but the main thing isn't about how he overcame temptation. It's not meant to be a guide for us, how we can overcome temptation. Who here would like a three-step plan just to tell us how we overcome temptation every single time? That would be easy, wouldn't it? It's not primarily about the devil either. In fact, the devil isn't mentioned that often. There's a couple of places where our translations say the devil did this, but the text doesn't say that. It just says he. The devil isn't mentioned as often as we think he is here. What is it about then? Oh, it's about the question that I asked us at the beginning. Who are we and what are we going to be? And it's for Jesus about who he is and what's he going to be. It's about his identity. Who is Jesus and what's he going to be? Last week, just before the huge genealogy, which I don't think we preached on. That'd be fun to preach on, wouldn't it? A genealogy of such and such begat such and such. Just before that, there was the story of Jesus' baptism. Do you remember that? And there's this vision that happens at the point that Jesus is baptised and the Holy Spirit, it says in Luke 3.22, the Holy Spirit descended upon him, upon Jesus, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. That's who Jesus is. He is God's son, the beloved one in whom God is pleased. So what does that look like? What does it look like to be God's son? How is Jesus going to go about being God's son? What's he going to do? So there's two things that flow out of the story of, of the baptism. Who is Jesus? And we're told who he is. And that the Holy Spirit is going to have a significant aspect to that role of who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove. And those two things are picked up in this story. Who is Jesus? And what role is the Holy Spirit going to have in his life? And that's the critical issue here. What is Jesus' identity? Who is he? What's he going to do? The Gospels are stories about Jesus. The Gospels are stories that tell us who Jesus is, and they open up the door, particularly the way that the stories are told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's as if we're walking around with Jesus and begin to discover 
who he is. Begin to discover who Jesus is as we're walking with him. And it becomes very clear who he is by the time we get to the end of the story. But on the way in that journey, we begin to discover it. But the story that's not often thought about is, how did Jesus work out who he was? And how did Jesus work out what he needed to do? That's the point when Jesus needed to know where he was going, to hear from Father what he was that he was about to do. And that's what's happening here, right at the start of Jesus' ministry. He's been baptized, he's received the Holy Spirit to empower him for the task. But what shape will it take? What kind of son will he be? What will he do? How will he live? And the temptation stories are where this is sorted out. Jesus has gone into the wilderness for 40 days. He's fasted, no doubt prayed. No doubt asking the Lord as he's been doing this. It must have been a large part of this. So what shape does this take? Praying to Father, what shape does this take? How am I to do these things? Empower me for that ministry with, that, with the Holy Spirit that you've poured out upon me. And at his weakest point, it says the devil was tempting him throughout those 40 days. But at his weakest point, on day 40 of the fast, it's like being at the worship prayer fasting conference, uh, con- I say that's about competition. Worship, prayer, fasting, conference. And there on the last day, you smell something coming from the kitchen. At that point when you're at your weakest, and you smell something and it pulls you, I want to have something to eat right now. And the question that comes for Jesus is, will he use the power that is upon him? Will he use who he is for his own interests? for the things that he may want to do, or to obey his father. What will he use it for? There's an interesting parallel that comes with this. I don't know if you spotted this. What story does the story of Jesus seem to parallel in many ways, in the way that it's told? There's a story in the Old Testament, and we looked at that story for months and months last year. The story of the Exodus, the stories of coming through the wilderness, and the wilderness wanderings of Israel. And there are lots of parallels between Jesus and that story. We've got Jesus in the wilderness. We've got Israel walking through the wilderness. We've got Israel walking for 40 years and Jesus being there for 40 days. We've got the question about who is Israel, as Israel is the nation, is God's son. It's the one that God has laid his his anointing upon. And who is Jesus as God's son? There are temptations that come their way, and a lot of these temptations are to do with bread and with food and with drink. How are we going to obey the Lord? Are we going to be obedient, or are we going to moan against the Lord? How do we handle hunger? How do we handle thirst? How do we handle worshipping God? Themes that come up with the temptations of Jesus. Themes that come up in the the wilderness as as the Israelites worshipped a golden calf, as the Israelites struggled with the manna. Themes that come again and again and again. Jesus' story begun in the River Jordan. Theirs begun as they go through the Red Sea. So there are parallels in that story. How is Jesus going to fare compared to Israel who didn't fare very well? Israel were people full of disobedience, full of criticism of God, full of doubt, full of uncertainty 
full of stubbornness and refusal to obey what God wanted them to do. Hence why they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Will Jesus be the same? Will Jesus be different? It surrounds who he is too. What kind of way will he go about serving God? Will he be the kind of Messiah that everybody was seeking for him to be? If a news reporter on television, on the BBC, was beamed back 2,000 years to go onto the streets and say, we've heard that the Messiah is around. What do you think the Messiah is going to be like? Who is this Messiah? They wouldn't have described what we see in Jesus. They'd have described something different. They'd have described something very political, very militaristic, a powerful man that rose up to lead the armies, a powerful man that rose up to that God would use him to rebuild the temple, God would use him to gather God's people together, and they would overthrow the Romans and kick them out. Something very political, something very full of military strength and might. Is that who Jesus is going to be? We'd get the job done, wouldn't it? That would get the job done. So what's Jesus to do? Is it getting the job done in that expedient way or something else? Is it about taking the obedient path? Jesus has offered a different way. The devil in three of these temptations, as we're told about these three, I'm sure there were many, many more, in these three climactic temptations, he offers him a different way of doing things that doesn't involve obeying the Lord in the way that he knows he should obey, and Jesus refuses because he would put obedience first. And he does it by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 to 8 right back to those wilderness wanderings, just back to as it was with Israel, saying, I will be what Israel should be. I will be what God has called Israel to be because as the Messiah, I am the one who represents Israel. There's something even more beautiful that comes out of this. The devil's challenging him about how he will be the son of God. The devil calls him on a couple of occasions, if you are the son of God, then... Jesus' answer, he replies with what every human being has to do, with what every single one of us has to do, not just the Son of God, but every human being, putting himself in the same place as we are. Every human being needs to obey God. Every human being needs to live not just off bread, but off of Scripture. Every human being shouldn't put God to the test. And he replies with what every single one of us needs to do. Because that's who Jesus is. Knowing who he is and how he's to live his life. He is God's son. He is God amongst us. He is God incarnate. Fully God and fully human. But as fully human, he will behave as a human being. No advantages. No abilities to do things that we don't have. But living as a human being amongst us. No lording it over humanity. No seeking humanity to run after him, to serve every need that he has, but becoming one of us and living amongst us. I think sometimes, as Christians, we have this view of Jesus as this superhero kind of human. He's not a human like you and like me, because he's God too. 
And that means that he's been bitten by a radioactive spider, uh, or whatever else happens to make people superheroes, taken some sort of serum, or been had God's power poured upon him. Or he is a man with a God brain, one of the early Theologians debated along this line. Was, was Jesus a human being with God's brain? He didn't use a human brain, he used a God brain. That would explain how Jesus is able to do things. But he's not properly human, if that's the case. Jesus is completely human. Sorry to be crude about it, but he had to learn how to feed himself, he had to learn how to go to the toilet, he had to learn to talk, just as we all do. And when the devil challenges him, the answers that he gives about how he's going to live his life are, as a human being will live their life, as a right human being will, and a place of humility. I always think that's so exciting. I love dwelling on the thought of Jesus as a human. Because it means he knows what it's like to be us. When we pray to the Lord Jesus, he knows what it's like to be a human being because he has been and is human. says in the pastoral letters that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is human and understands what it's like to be us. And Jesus takes authority over the devil. That's one of the things that's amazing about this story. It says that after these three temptations that the devil left him from an opportune time, verse 13, When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. He departed from tempting him until it was time to tempt him again. And the next point in the story that we really see, the pressure of this happening is in the Garden of Gethsemane. But there's a victory that Jesus has had over the evil one at this point. And it seems that all that Jesus is able to do arises from this victory in his temptations. The fact that Jesus can cast out demons, the fact that Jesus can do all these sorts of things is because he's shown he's taken authority and taken that stand. And I think for us, it's important how we stand up to the pressures that come against us from the enemy. Because our spiritual authority often flows from the point in which we are resisting things that we need to be resisting. And it's as we're resisting and we're standing firm against what the enemy is pressing in on us, then the Lord gives us some spiritual authority flowing through from that. So my question for each of us. Do we know who we're supposed to be? Do we know what God has called us to be? Do we know what shape that should take? Because quite often when the Lord asks us to do something, There can be something that arises up within us and go, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that'll be fun. I can do this. I can do this. Oh, that's a way of being able to control this now. Well, that's a way of... And there are thoughts that rise up within us that are are from us or from the evil one, not from God. And how is God calling us to do the things that he's called us to do? To be a house group leader, to lead in Dandelion, to share with people at the school gate to pray, whatever it is that the Lord has called us to do. How are we supposed to do it? As I said, the second thing that this passage is about is about the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. 
There's more mention of the Spirit in Luke's Gospel than there is in any of the other Gospels. There's more mention in this temptation narrative in many ways too. Jesus, it says, is full of the Holy Spirit in verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is full of the Spirit from his birth. We're told that in Luke's Gospel, uh, that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. But here we, we, we hear the story of his baptism where God pours his spirit upon him to equip him and anoint him for this task that he has. And we read that full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is surrendered to the Holy Spirit. I think we sometimes use different images to imagine that, don't we? I think we sometimes use this idea of a, a glass that is full of the Holy Spirit, so that there's this liquid that fills this glass, and we contain the Holy Spirit as he's poured into us, and it's so full that as we're jogged, then God spills out. That's a good image, although I sometimes think it's a little bit static, that we're just this rigid container that contains the Spirit. Maybe we're full of the Spirit in a way that a car's petrol tank can be full of petrol, or its battery can be full of electric. Let's be a little bit more uh, environmentally friendly. And therefore that power is power that comes into us. The whole way that the car is able to do its cariness is because it's full of petrol. Anybody here ever had a car that's been empty of petrol? You know, what can you do with it? Play with the windscreen wipers and put the radio on. You know, not much use for doing anything else. It needs to be full of petrol to go. And we as as human beings need to have that petrol within us. Maybe there's other ways of looking at being full of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's like being full of joy. We describe somebody as full of joy. Because you can see it on their face and in everything that they do. People that are full of joy are infectious to be around. There's something that manifests from them. I want to use a different image for being full of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps not such a nice one as a glass. But I want to look at it perhaps in the sense of like a sock or a glove. A sock that's full of foot or a glove that's full of hand. Because it's the hand that brings shape to the glove. And especially with the sock, it's the foot that's put into it that brings shape to that foot, to that, to that sock. So when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, it's the Spirit that brings the shape to us and that we expand around the Spirit. It's not that the Spirit is poured into something that we are defining where the Spirit is. The Spirit defines who we are and changes us and stretches us and moves us into a new... And then we begin to fulfill the purpose for which we exist. A sock in a drawer is kind of just space-occupying, adding a bit of insulation to anything else that's in the drawer that's feeling a bit cold that day. But a sock that's on your foot is doing its job, what? Whatever that may be. That's just not wearing any socks. Jesus is full of the Spirit, defined by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, shaped by the Spirit. And as he's walking in the wilderness and praying and fasting, it's the Spirit who is teaching him. And it says the Spirit led him. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Really interesting. I don't know if you've noticed, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it describes this in different ways. 
Mark's gospel uses a word that means that the Holy Spirit thrust him into the wilderness. Matthew's gospel uses a word that means that the Spirit led him up in an upward sort of direction into the wilderness, to a higher point. Luke uses a word that means he led him. He led him into the wilderness. Well, it doesn't say into the wilderness, as the other gospel says. It led him in the wilderness. So it looks like into and throughout the time that he is there in the wilderness, the Spirit has led him. He was taken into the wilderness by the Spirit, and the Spirit led him while he was there, spoke to him, taught him, helped him to understand who he is. It's as if the Holy Spirit has said, now's the time. Now's the time. You are coming this way. This is the point. This is the moment. You are coming with me into the wilderness. This is a time of shaping. This is a time of moving. And as if the Holy Spirit has led Jesus into this place of temptation. It's not that the devil has found, oh, this is an opportune moment. Let me grab hold of Jesus. Jesus has been led into that place, fully aware of what's about to happen, because there's an importance with him being proved to be who he is and understanding who he is, to define him, to shape him through trial, through difficult times. But the story does also describe the fight of temptation. It does describe what it is to stand against the devil. So it might be predominantly about who is Jesus and how does the Spirit lead him, but there is also part of this story that is about how Jesus stands against the devil. He is called the devil. In the Old Testament, we know of the devil as the slanderer, as the one who, a bit like looking at certain parts of contemporary politics, somebody who couldn't tell the truth to save their life. You know, somebody who will always manipulate things and move things and smooth talk things and, and gloss things over and say things in a way that just manipulates the truth just a little bit, just enough. It sounds believable, but it's never true. It's never exactly how it is. If they say something, you know that the opposite is probably true or that it was something similar to what they said, but it wasn't what they said because you just cannot believe what they've said. And yet... They sound so believable. I think we all probably know people like that. Not just in the national world, not on the international stage, but even amongst people that we know that you never quite know whether to believe what they've said, but everything they say seems so believable. Does that make sense? The devil is the master at that. He's the misinformer. Lies are his natural language. He twists and manipulates everything. He's the one that leads people astray. He's the one that accuses people before God. So when he comes on the scene in the Gospels, we know what's going to happen. He's going to oppose Jesus and lie to him and manipulate him. But how does he do it? Completely evil, completely dishonest. How does he appear to Jesus? Does he appear to Jesus putting evil right up against his face? A grotesque evil, smelly, 
putrid, genocidal, proud, disruptive, controlling evil. No. He doesn't. He befriends Jesus. He comes alongside Jesus as his friend, as his ally, being concerned for Jesus, worried for Jesus, helping him. Let me help you. You must be hungry by now. There are some rules that you need to obey and some rules that you don't need to obey, but surely there's some wiggle room here, isn't there? You're God's son, you can do what you like. There's a bit of wiggle room to make that into a bit of bread. As God said, you can't eat anything. You can make anything you like. I'm concerned that it's difficult to know what God is calling you to do while you're so hungry. You have a difficult mission. Maybe God isn't really there for you as much as you think he is. But I can assist. I'm on your side. You know, this may not be the obvious way to do things, but this will work really well, won't it? You thought about doing it this way? Creative, isn't it? Doesn't break any rules. Nudges them a bit. But that's fine. We can all be a bit independent of spirit. And surely God doesn't want you to struggle in the way that you are. And then the temptations that he brings to Jesus don't really look like sin to us. He's not appeared to Jesus and gone, that great high priest over there, why don't you knock him off? See that, see that camel over there? Plugged into the fast electric recycle at the moment, fully charged with electricity. Why don't you borrow that camel and just never bring it back? Get out of the wilderness really, really quickly. He's not talking about theft and murder and stuff that we may think about. He's talking about stuff that almost doesn't look like it is disobedience. In verses 3 and 4, we read the first one. The devil said to him, If you're the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written... One doesn't live by bread alone. If you are the son of God, surely Jesus doesn't doubt that at all. Jesus knows that he's God's son because he's heard it from God himself at his baptism. It's not going to be a moment of doubt in his mind about that, but how do I be that son? If I'm the son of God, then can't I do this? How will I be that son? Do things God's way or do things my way? And the devil is coming alongside him and just saying, it's important, you have physical needs. This would answer your physical needs. Surely God would let you create something. You've been creating stuff since you created everything. Just create a bit of bread and eat it. Serving our own needs or obeying the Father Jesus replies to him, it is written, one doesn't live by bread alone. All human beings do not live by bread alone. All human beings live by obeying God too. It's really interesting, he doesn't say to the devil, you're, you're wrong, you're wrong devil. He brings the devil face to face with what God has said in scripture and says, that's the authority. That's where my authority is drawn from. Second thing, verses 5 to 8. The devil led him up and showed him in an instant 
all the kingdoms, all the political powers and manipulations of the world. And the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority for it's been given over to me and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. The devil's words, he mentions Jesus three times. He mentions himself, the devil, five times. How many times does he mention God in his discussion with Jesus? None. No mention of God at all. It's about Jesus and the devil, and it's just the way that the language is used. It's manipulative and it's controlling. Will Jesus be using these political phrases, these political turns of phrase? How will Jesus rule the world? How will Jesus get what he get, should get done? Jesus is the Lord of the whole of the world. We know that there's a point which all things will be brought under Jesus in the future. How will he achieve that? Wouldn't it be a lot easier? Wouldn't it be a lot easier just to, to worship me and I will give you all of that willingly? Then you've done the job. The job is done. Isn't that an easy way of doing it? Well, in Jesus' reply, he bears one thing in mind that the devil doesn't tell him. It's what the devil will do with us. He will come and tell us, offer us two alternatives about doing something and behind his back he's got a third alternative or a fourth alternative that are the right ones that he won't even tell us about. And he'll offer us a choice that isn't really a choice. Jesus knows one thing. The devil's right that he has the power, to give, he has the power over the whole of the world. It's in his hands. And he can give it to whoever he wants. But what the devil hasn't mentioned is the reason that he's got that power is that God is letting him have that power at the moment. The devil ultimately doesn't own that power. He's kind of got it on rental for a bit. Does that make sense? He's got it on rental for a bit, but he has no power to give it ultimately. That comes from God. So who is the one that Jesus should obey? God, not the devil. Because God is the one who ultimately holds all of those things. There's no shortcuts apart from doing it God's way. Verse 9. The third temptation. The devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, now quoting a psalm to Jesus. The devil's got it now that you quote scripture. So he starts quoting scripture at Jesus. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. I didn't mention in the previous temptation, which Jesus quotes scripture back at the devil as a way of saying, I will not do what you've said. Now the devil begins to quote scripture to Jesus. This is where it gets dangerous. This is where it gets hard. Because he interprets scripture in a way that is not the meaning of the scripture that he's taking. He's twisting it. He's changing it. It's his natural language. He, He's taken out Google Translate on his phone, and he's gone, Scripture, convert to devil language, please. And it's just come out with lies and manipulation and twisting. And people will share Scripture with us to encourage us to do things. And the enemy will share Scripture with us to encourage us to do things. This is what God has said, isn't it? 
God has said he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. On the hands they will bear you up. So throw yourself down. And the church has always known for years and years and years. Even the church fathers talk about this. Don't believe someone quoting scripture at you immediately. But look at their life. Look at their opinions. Look at their intention. Look at how they love God. Then decide if they're handling scripture rightly. Is Jesus committed to obeying God? Well, Jesus wants to be the one who obeys God. Not putting God to the test. And the devil is wrong in his interpretation of that psalm. The understanding of that psalm, it talks about the one who is living in obedience to God will do these things. And if he's going and throwing himself in that way, Jesus is not living in obedience to God, so it doesn't really count what the devil has said. And besides, besides, Jesus knows something. Jesus knows that God's route to saving humanity doesn't come through getting rid of suffering and doesn't come through rescuing Jesus from suffering. It goes right through the center of suffering with Jesus entering into suffering and death. That's the route Jesus is going. He's not going the route of God will rescue him from suffering so he doesn't need to suffer. Jesus is heading right into suffering and I'm sure that as he was praying and meditating Even back there in the wilderness for those 40 days, he was realizing that what it meant for Messiah was to suffer and to die. And it wasn't about saying to God, I'm going to put myself in a high-risk environment and you're going to save me from it. Because Jesus' whole incarnation is putting him in a high-risk environment and he's going to go right through the center of human pain. Because that is who he is. So what does this mean for us? I don't know where we're at this morning. But I want to encourage us all to meditate a little bit about who we are and who God is calling us to be. What is the shape of our life? What is the shape of, that God has called us to be? And have we asked God what that is? And where, like Jesus, we're tempted about physical things, about bread, about food, about the need for these physical things that our body needs. Our body needs food. The temptations of sex, the temptations of intimacy, the temptations of affection, the temptations of needing all the things that we need in our physical body and in our emotional sense. Those things can often be used to pull us in a wrongful direction and asking God to help us with those. What about our worship life? Is there a temptation sometimes to take the easy route, the dishonest route, to just just ever so slightly cut a corner, to do the spiritual equivalent of taking out Google Maps and go, what's the quickest route from A to B? Rather than that we know that the Lord has told us we've got to go through Lee Green, and it takes forever to go through Lee Green. And we want to do a different route. But the Lord has said, you're going through Lee Green, so through Lee Green we're going. And we will wait at those traffic lights to turn right forever. But that is the route that the Lord has told us to go. And there are no shortcuts. And that's the route we're to go. 
And what about maybe the temple for us, standing on the temple and tempted to put God to the test? If God has called us to do something, we can trust him that wherever we go, whatever pain we enter into, he is with us. The enemy will be saying things to us today and every day of, I know what it's like to be you. And I know the needs that you have. But at the same time, the Lord Jesus says, I know what it is to be human. And God's spirit walks alongside us and says, let me fill you. Let me fill you to strengthen you and help you. And listen to me. And we can walk through this together. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for all of us this morning that you would strengthen us standing against the enemy. Where we're tempted, whether that's things that rise up within us, whether it's our flesh, whether it's things in the world that look so seductive or whether the enemy himself is pressing in, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us strength to resist. Help us to see what you are calling us to. Help us to see what is your truth and fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray, to help us to resist. In Jesus' name, amen. Let your living word abide in me so richly as I let your name.